Today's reading is from John chapter 11, verses 1 to 44. Now a man named Lazarus was ill. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay ill, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is ill. When he heard this, Jesus said, this illness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you are going back. Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. 
Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth round his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Thank you, Reba, for reading. And thank you, Laura, for leading our service so well this morning. And um, also to Alex and to Sarah for sharing so honestly um, just reality of life. And it's good to hear this, isn't it? It's good to hear that we can be a church where we can be open and talk about what's really going on and how God is in both the suffering as well as the joy. So thank you again for um, sharing your story with us. And as we look at this passage in John 11, we are brought to serious, serious issues, aren't we? Um, I must admit, it made me laugh when I heard the kids screaming downstairs because you have that moment where you just go, oh my gosh, who's running, what's going on, you know, security alert. But don't worry, what they're doing is looking at Palm Sunday and they're doing responses like if a celebrity or a footballer showed up. So I'm assuming that scream was one of joy at pretending someone from One Direction or uh, Man United had come along. Or sheer terror, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but no, everything's well. It's okay, parents, don't worry. The reality of our mortality, as we've already heard, is very hard to ignore, isn't it? Especially with what we've been through during the pandemic, a global pandemic, for several months we were given a daily death toll of people who did not survive COVID-19. A daily death toll. The reality of our mortality is hard to ignore when there's a war in Europe and our news broadcasts show the devastation caused to homes, hospitals, schools, shopping centres, theatres, everyday places that a month ago, just over a month ago, were bustling with life. Um, Ali, if you can flick the slide on, please. There we go. An image of the operating room. Something that reminds us of our mortality. The reality, again, of our mortality is hard to ignore when there are 13 million people in the Horn of Africa who at the moment are facing starvation in one of the most severe droughts gripping the region, and a further 2 billion people worldwide still lack ready access to to home-based safe water, safe contamination-free water in their homes. Two billion. Death, pandemics, injustice, poverty, social breakdown. We're desperately in need of an anchor of hope in the storm of suffering, aren't we? 
Uvel Noah Harari, in his 2017 bestseller, Homo Deus, argues that hope is here and now. It's the control we have in our hands. He writes, at the dawn of the third millennium, humanity wakes up to an amazing realization. Most people rarely think about it, but in the last few decades, we've managed to rein in famine, plague, and war. Of course, these problems have not been completely solved, but they've been transformed from incomprehensible and uncontrollable forces of nature into manageable challenges. We don't need to pray to any god or saint to rescue us from them. We know quite well what needs to be done to prevent famine, plague, and war, and we usually succeed in doing it. In other words, Harari says we can have hope and confidence in a bright future because we have all the resources within ourselves to bring it about. And to some extent, we'd say yes. But those words, written in 2017, to me, ring hollow at points because they underestimate how consistently self-centered human beings are. Um, He says, we know quite well what needs to be done, but we still fail to do it. Self-centered. And how damaging some of this awesome technology which can solve the problems is itself the problem. In the wrong hands, it can be horrific. During dark and uncertain times, no matter what continent we live on, human beings have continued to look for and grasp hold of hope. And Christianity offers no better place to look than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the bedrock, the foundation. And in John 11, we have one of the most well-known incidents in Jesus' ministry at one of the most painful and hope-sapping times in family life, a bereavement. And this seventh sign in John's gospel, the most significant before Jesus' own death and resurrection, not only shows who Jesus is, but what he came to do. And so as we look at this passage today, and I hope you've got your Bibles open, either on your phone or um, we've got some down here if you want the actual text. Uh, But we're going to look at just three things that come out of this episode, which I hope both challenge us and comfort us. And the first thing that we can't ignore is the uncomfortable love of Jesus, the uncomfortable love of Jesus. Look at verses 1 to 11. We're introduced to some of his close friends. Now, a man named Lazarus was ill, we're told. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and his sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother uh, Lazarus lay ill, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. That happens in the next chapter. So John's recalling these events so that people can pinpoint who really was there. This is eyewitness stuff. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is ill. This family were Jesus's close supporters. Their home near Jerusalem was a place of comfort and welcome in the face of growing opposition. We read that in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 10. But now they faced a desperate situation. Their brother is dying. Yes, Jesus was on the other side of the Jordan. That's about 100 miles away from where they lived in Bethany. And they needed his hope, his help. Yes, Jesus was facing death threats. We're told that in verse 8. So returning to Bethany to be near Jerusalem would be costly for Jesus. But their brother was dying. Mary and Martha get the fastest donkey or runner and send the message. And there's no doubt about the response they expected, is there? The one you love is ill. It's short, 
but dripping with emotion. Read between the lines. Jesus, get here as soon as you can. And immediately Jesus understands, doesn't he? But his response is still very puzzling, isn't it? Verse 4, this illness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. Firstly, Jesus knows that death won't be the final result. Instead, his glory will be revealed in some way through this sadness. In other words, something audacious, something immense is about to take place. A dead man who has started to decay in a Palestinian grave for four days, will be brought back to life. We know where this is going, because we've got the account here. The creator God's power and character will be revealed through the work of his divine son. When you look at Jesus, you're looking at God. Okay, so, wow, that's what's going to happen. This is what's going on in Jesus' mind. But secondly... There's an uncomfortable puzzle here, surely. He loves this family deeply, verse 5. He still cares deeply, personally, for all his followers today, even in the face of death. But then in verse 6, so, or more literally, therefore, when Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed where he was two more days. Surely that's a mistake. It should read, shouldn't it? He left immediately. Pack up your bags, we've got to run. We're so used, aren't we, to the superhero dropping everything, um, donning the cape, going supersonic, to the rescue, there and then. I was just watching the Superman and Lois thing on, on BBC iPlayer last night, and there was an incident. One of his sons is going to get beaten up at school, and Clark just appears, boom, in the corridor, surreptitiously but super quick, to, to alleviate the issue. And that's kind of, we think God works like that. Just do it now. Get your cape on and go. But no, it's the opposite. He actually delayed leaving because he loved them. Why would you do that? I hope you, you as you're getting into this passage, you're going, what? You should be shocked. On a public level, there could be no question that Lazarus was certainly dead by the time Jesus and his disciples arrived on at Bethany. Verse 19, we're told friends had come to join in mourning and consoling the sisters in their grief. Verses 21 and 32, Martha and Mary's identical greetings show Jesus is too late. Lazarus is dead. So that's interesting, isn't it? Because any rumors that might circulate that go, well, he was really alive, have no grounds. No one could say, oh, Jesus, just when he did show up, he merely revived him. You know, put some olive oil on, give him some water, fan him a bit. No credibility. He's gone. Interestingly, alternative theories circulated immediately after Jesus' resurrection. And they still do today as people push away the obvious conclusion that it happened as eyewitnesses said it happened. But then secondly, on the journey, Jesus makes it clear to his close disciples that there is a bigger purpose again in Lazarus' death. Verse 14, he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead 
and for your sake. I am glad I was not there. So that you may believe. It's quite simple. This is happening for you, he says to his close followers. This is happening for us. What? What could be so important that it would happen for us? Jesus says, so that you might believe that you get me. The plan of the Father and the Son was to bring people to belief in the specific truth that Jesus is the resurrection. Jesus wants his disciples, he wants Mary and Martha, he wants the funeral guests and even us today to see that salvation for eternal life with him is his work. That with him death is like falling asleep and waking up, verse 11. And let's be honest, that is confounding. Thomas, in many ways, represents us with our doubts and our skepticism. That's why I love him. He's brilliant. It's great. He is recorded in the Bible. No cover-up. Here's the guy with all the weird questions and the doubts. Brilliant. He's got front-row place, and Jesus never lets him go. In verse 16, he's figured out, if we're heading to Jerusalem, guys, we're heading to death because we're going to be killed by the authorities. And as the commentator Andreas Kostenberger puts it, Thomas is the sober, realistic human mind. Yeah? He is the one who represents us. Again, we hear the same reaction, don't we, in the crowd of Jews. Look at verse 37 with their searching question. If he had opened the eyes of the blind man, just go back two chapters to chapter 9, awesome miracle done there. If he's done that, couldn't he have kept Lazarus alive? Yeah, great logic. Spot on questioning. And that mindset is why Jesus' love can be so uncomfortable for us. Because it is a love that is prepared to challenge, a love that is prepared to change us, a, a love that is prepared to say, look, you've got to see that things with God are central. He is center, not yourselves. And it is the best love we could have because it is good, it is kind, it is ultimate, because it brings us into God. You see, the entire gospel is a story of God doing all things well, not all things easily, much to our um, shame in the West. We want things now and easy, please. All things well, not all things easily. Yes, God is our generous, loving Father, but this doesn't mean he leads his children in a life of complacent comfort and ease. Do we believe that here at Grace Church? Being a Christian will feel like walking through pleasant meadows at times. Instagrammable posts of sunshine and everything in its place. Um, it will also feel like snowy blizzards. You know where it, you don't have to go very far because if you live in Manchester in the winter months, you will experience this. But where the wind hits you in your face, it's raining, there's just no respite, and you have got to walk home being soaked. Yeah? It will feel like that. 
snowy blizzards. It will feel like the high, narrow, rocky pathways which you just think, oh my gosh, one step and I'm gone. All rolled into one. So Jesus waits longer before responding so that his compassion, his power could be revealed more profoundly, more gloriously. To reveal his timing is wise. It will be painful, therefore, for us. If we're disciples, if we're saying we're following, it's going to be painful. Let's get that straight. Alex and Sarah have made that clearly obvious, as well as within the comfort and love and joy and security of a God who does not let us go. It will be painful. The weight tests. It refines our patience. It challenges our priorities. It tempers our need of immediate gratification as we make sense of the gap between now, where we are, and the not yet, what Jesus has promised with his kingdom coming. It's like that Haribo advert. Do you remember the one where they've got all these kids... And they're given the one sweet and they say, look, don't eat it and you'll get a whole bag when you come back sort of thing. And I think there were one or two adults in there as well. The promise of the bag of sweets when the person returns, but no, the Haribo one is just too much. Will we allow the Lord to shape our desires, our character, between the gap, between the now where we are and the not yet of his kingdom coming? Will we settle for the Haribo? Or the treasure. When God doesn't answer our prayers for healing or for relief from suffering, we can get angry and resentful. But what if God is going to demonstrate his care in other ways, as we see happening here? What if Alex and Sarah didn't go through what they went through? Well, I'd be poor already, because this morning has moved me. It's a word I needed to hear. Huh. God's care through his people going through tough times, speaking about it, pastoring one another, pushing us on to hope in God. What if something is taken away so that something even more valuable can be given to you? Something more valuable that is God himself. What if a time of discomfort leads us further into experiencing his faithful love? Which will give us an appetite for the kingdom we're created for. God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are not naturally our thoughts. They are so much better. And the challenge is to say to that amen when we're going through it. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to be pain-free, and we can see that as Mary and Martha meet Jesus. But next, we see the loving wisdom of Jesus. If we see the uncomfortable love, we also see the loving wisdom here. Look at verses 20 to 37, this chunk of dialogue that takes place, because we see Jesus' love and wisdom at work as he responds to both sisters in their grief differently. Grief is so crushing and draining. In her book, Uh, becoming Michelle Obama openly shares how she felt when her father Fraser died it hurts to live she said after someone has died it just does it can hurt to walk down a hallway or open the fridge it hurts to put a pair of socks on to brush your teeth food tastes like nothing colors go flat music hurts and so do memories You look at something you'd otherwise find beautiful, a purple sky at sunset or a playground full of kids, and it only somehow deepens the loss. Grief is so lonely this way. I think we could also say depression is so lonely this way. Anxiety does the same. 
The colors aren't bright. There's no taste. There's a knot in your stomach all the time. Nancy Guthrie, the Christian author who wrote What Grieving People Wish You Knew, states, first thing people mentioned, how much it means that you just show up on the day of the accident, on the day of the funeral, just keep showing up over the months and years. Keep showing up. Isn't it interesting? That's the thing that's delayed here in this account. And yet it's the thing that people most need. And these two sisters are deep in their grief. They're surrounded by friends, but they're alone in their grief. And the one person they want to show up is late. Both sisters have the same thing on their mind. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Did you hear? They said exactly the same thing. There's disappointment. There's anger. There's hurt in their words. But there's also hope. What does Martha say? But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Wow. Mary's emotions are laid bare. She falls at the feet of Jesus, which in itself is a simple act of dependence and honor. But notice Jesus' responses are so different and so personal to each one. With Martha, Jesus' loving wisdom is seen in him pushing further into the content of her belief, going from the general understanding that her brother will rise again on the last day, verse 23, like a Sunday school answer or RE class, in some way. Yeah, he'll rise, that's, that's in the scriptures, to the breathtaking core truth on it all being about him, verses 25 to 26. Hear these words again, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Can you hear that this is a direct claim to his divinity? Only God can give life and take it away. Jesus is not merely saying, I'll revive Lazarus. I've got access to some sort of power at different points, which I'll use to work for good. No, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. The I am name in the Old Testament is, the, is only spoken by the Lord, God, directly to Moses. No other prophet, no other king, no other priest use that name, I am, themselves. So Jesus is publicly stating, I am the divine power that comes and gives everything life, that keeps everything alive. The founders of every other major religion said, I'm a prophet who shows you the way to find God. Jesus taught, I'm God, come to you. And if anyone spoke like this at a funeral today, they'd be kicked out, wouldn't they? For being a mix of grossly insensitive and just mad. But not Jesus. Isn't that fascinating? Martha doesn't then break down into more tears or pushes him away, what does she do? She takes him at his word. He is God. It's a radical truth to accept, but she sees it's not self-deceived. He's not a con man. And when we look at his response to Mary, we see something equally astonishing. Verses 33 to 35. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Verse 34. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Jesus is practically speechless. Instead of meeting the grief with words of truth and hope, pushing further into understanding, 
he stands alongside Mary and enters into her grief, bursting into tears. This wasn't a performance. It wasn't what's going to happen at the Oscars, even though I'm sure some of those tears are definitely well-meant and come from emotion. But this isn't performance-driven stuff. This is heartfelt sadness. This shows us the character and identity of Jesus. We're seeing intimately how he feels. The Son of God. What makes him tick? What moves him? And Jesus is both truly God and the one with power over life and fully man, but he's not pretending as a human being. He truly is human. He isn't disguised. He weeps because he's experiencing real pain and suffering. He weeps because he loves his family. He weeps because death robs us of God's good gift of life. And Jesus knows exactly what we need in our suffering and loss because he is fully good, fully God, and fully human. He gives us both a ministry of truth in his words and a ministry of tears in his comfort. Because what we need most in suffering is to encounter God. And you encounter God in the truth and the tears. We need more than mere sentiment that things will work out all right. We need assurance that there is one who is waiting for us, who will be our great companion through the last journey we all have to make from this world to the next. As the pastor and writer Tim Keller puts it, he is the truth itself come in tears. He has tenderness without weakness, strength without harshness, humility without a lack of confidence. That's why he can be trusted. He can be trusted with our deepest hurts, our deepest grief, our suffering. But if Jesus just left the encounter there, it would be nothing more than false hope and empty words. And this is what we see finally, the costly victory of Jesus. Did you notice in verses 33 and 38, Jesus is described as being deeply moved. Yeah, it's repeated, deeply moved. Now the Greek word in that verse means to bellow with anger. You know, when you think of deeply moved, you might be thinking he's, he's reaching for more Kleenex or something. Think like a boxer, just get, you know, looking at the punch bag, ready to belt it one. Or it's that sort of gut-wrenching anger, emotion. These are holy tears. There is a deliberate and controlled anger, not at the family, not at the crowd, nor at himself for being late. This is all part of the plan. But anger at the tyranny of death, the result of humanity's rebellion against God that corrupts everything, that takes life, that stains each one of us, that cuts us off from God. This was not God's original design, and he hasn't ignored this catastrophic horror. He isn't disinterested. He isn't unmoved. In sending his son to live as one of us on earth, he has given us the best answer. A savior who would offer his life to overcome sin and death. A savior who will take out this enemy. So as Jesus commands the stone to be taken away from the tomb, as he answers Martha's protest about the smell of the corpse, as he prays clearly to the Father loudly so that everyone would know this miracle is for their benefit so that they'd believe he is the saviour they'd need, 
as he calls Lazarus out of the tomb and no one else because he's the power there and then to bring every dead corpse out of their tombs. And a previously dead man is now walking into daylight, freed from death. He does all of this knowing full well that to save us from eternal death, to save us from hell, would cost him his life. In love, he used his power not to crush, but to be crushed on the cross, bearing our judgment for our sin, even to death, so that we could have everlasting life with him. As he calls Lazarus to life, he is willingly signing his own death warrant. That's the only way to get him out of the tomb. It's Jesus' life for ours. And later in, in verse 53, we're told the religious leaders start making their plans to put him to death. He was a threat to their power and control. This is not how it's going to be on my watch, they were saying. And Lazarus' death and new life, therefore, is a sign. Don't get hung up on Lazarus. It is a sign. It's pointing forward. That's why John's included it. To the real, massive, life-changing, historic miracle, the death and resurrection of Jesus, that would bring to all who put their trust in him, who believe in him, it would bring to all of us this life that will never end. You see, Jesus' miracles, we find hard to believe because they feel so unnatural, such a disruption. But as one theologian, um, Maltman, put it, actually, what's really unnatural is the world as it is in its brokenness and evil and in its fallen state. And these miracles are actually the way things are natural, truly meant to be. The miracles break in to show us this is the world we were meant for. And this is the world to come in Jesus' rule. It is a victory. It is a picture of the world restored. It is a victory and a free gift that we cannot pay for. But it costs Jesus everything. I love how Rico Tice and the team at Hope Explored, one of the courses we use here at Grace Church, explains it. He says it like this. In his resurrection, Jesus is like a needle that goes through a tapestry. He bursts through death and comes out through the other side. And we're like the thread. If we're attached to him, we will follow through. We will still die. But like Jesus, we'll burst through into glorious life on the other side. There is a real new world restored order which we will be part of physically with him reigning. Over 13 years ago, I got to know uh, a chap called Chris, who was a student at uh, the church I worked at, he had, could, he had a really committed and contagious love for Jesus Christ, even supporting one of his close friends from a Muslim background who wanted to follow Jesus. He also had leukemia, and at the age of 20, died. Chris wrote a short letter before his death, which he was happy for it to be shared with others. And on the face of it, his life was cut short. He missed out on so much. And yet Chris speaks as one who hasn't missed out, even in the midst of painful terminal illness. Chris wrote, I made a number of plans for my life, but God in his sovereignty took me in a different direction. His plan is perfect, and so although being ill has been hard at times, and I may not fully understand what is going on and why, I know God is in complete control and his purposes will be achieved. 
None of us knows what tomorrow holds, so it is important that we make sure we know we are in a right relationship with God. My greatest comfort at this time is the knowledge that I don't have to do anything to earn um, acceptance with God. My salvation is a gift from him who has done everything for me. He has saved me by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus, who lived the life I couldn't live, died the death I should have died, rose again and is alive today. I am secure in the knowledge that he will take me. He will take me to be with him for all eternity. Sorry, these words get me because I, I can remember going to see Chris a few weeks before his death. And he had that unshakable resurrection hope. Not angry not asking questions or doubts about where was God and why. He, he assured me, the pastor, going in. And I said, when, I, I want to use this letter, Chris. I don't want to forget this. I want you to bless others with what you're saying. He was like, yeah, do it. His parents will still feel the grief of his passing. But they also have the hopeful joy of the resurrection too. The good news, whatever our circumstances and suffering, is that Jesus offers to get alongside us, to accompany us every step of the way, even through death itself, where Keller says, no other guides go. All other guides turn back at that point. As the, the, the Anglican minister Melvin Tinker wrote, when we stand on the edge of eternity, we need God. Nothing less will do. Alex summed that up brilliantly with that picture falling down a well, and you're trying to grab on to all the other things that you think are going to be there, and you just have to fall into God. Because in his son, that's enough. So what are you going to do about it today? How will you respond? Verse 45, look at the reaction there. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. They got it. This has been preserved for us. Yeah, you'll have questions. Yes, you'll want to look further. But this has been preserved for us so that you can do the same. So that you may believe. Or, verse 46, some saw the same stuff heard the same stuff, and rejected. In fact, they ran off to the authorities to report it, to trigger the events that would bring our salvation, the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. And then in 57, there's active opposition. There's a plot to push good news down, and not just push it down, to kill the Savior. How will you respond? Well, if you are interested in looking further into Jesus' gift of life, and you've still got questions which are right and proper, and Thomas is still wrestling with these, even through to chapter 20 and beyond he's wrestling, then use this email, ask at gracechurchmanchester.net. And what we'll do is, if you email there, we'll send you some more details about the online Christianity Explore course that we'll be running um, at some point in later in May, April. That's one way of doing things, and we'd love to help you with that. The other is, quite simply, read a gospel. Just spend some time over the next week reading 
John. Just go through with it. List your questions. List the astounding things, the surprising things. Read it and say, God, are you there? Meet me. Perhaps today you're carrying the weight of grief or a particular suffering and you're in need of some hope and comfort. You, you maybe feel a bit more like Mary and Martha. And in a simple way, to receive that is in prayer. And we would love to do that with you afterwards. Um, please, just come and talk to me and Laura. We'd love to pray with you. I'm sure if Alex and Sarah have time as well, they would be willing to do that. And we can just do that to the side here, out of the way. No big deal. But actually, one of the biggest deals. One of the biggest privileges. My hope is that each one of us in time will not squander the life we've been given, but actually discover the lasting peace, the purpose, the love that Jesus offers to the longing of our hearts. Let's turn to him who is the resurrection. Father, thank you for your grace to us. Thank you that you are a God who meets us in our suffering, in our tears. You meet us with truth and you meet us with tears. Father, would you please meet each person here today with all that we carry, with all that we've been through, with the pain, the suffering, the, the depression, the mental health issues that we're carrying, the, the joys as well, the things we give thanks for, the hope, the faith that you've nurtured. Father, take us further into you. Take us deeper into knowing what it means for Jesus to say, I am the resurrection for us to be part of that resurrection life to live with expectant hope, now knowing what is to come in the future. Thank you, Father, that your love is enough for us and that you are a saviour who does not turn your back, even in the face of death. You bring us through. Father God, we need you. Amen.